So our Bible reading tonight is taken from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, and you can find that on page 1206 of the Bibles in the pew. So Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 28, and page 1206 in the pew Bibles. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room. And that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In the case of a will, it is necessary to provide the death of the one who made it, because a will is only in force when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water 
scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy for the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of God. Amen. Well, uh, thank you, Carl, for uh, leading us so appropriately in praise and in prayer. So we, uh, and thank you, team, um, some of you don't sing very often. I think most of our musicians have all cleared off to Kilkeel, wherever, yes. Well, don't consider yourselves as stand-ins. We were led excellently. Uh, We miss the others, but it's great to have such a, a, a wide group who can facilitate us in the leading of praise. Yeah, now to Hebrews chapter 9. Okay. Northern Ireland is religiously fairly stable. Now, I know the mainstream churches are losing uh, members and adherents, but it's still fairly stable. We don't have either hordes rushing into the church or uh, hordes leaving it uh, one particular Sunday. That happens occasionally, but it's, we're normally stable and not much happens one way or the other. And so it, it takes a bit of an effort to think our way into the situation that the writer to the Hebrews is addressing. I'm helped to uh, think my way into that because I I once worked in South America and there things are a bit 
different from here. Uh, They're different in that the church is expanding rapidly, uh, but also there's a, a, a big front door that many people are going in, but there is as nearly a big back door where people are also going out. And when I have contact with some of my former students, I ask about how so-and-so is getting on and so-and-so, and what can you tell me? And I'm delighted to hear how some are uh, moving on in the faith, and I'm very disappointed when I hear of the odd one who has fallen away. Falling away. And they do it spectacularly sometimes. Let, let, let me tell you about one of my students, former students. He, he had gone through uh, his theological course. He was an assistant minister, uh, and like assistant ministers and ministers, he, he took his turn at conducting funerals, and uh, he thought he would do something different, this one. And I'm not pulling your leg. At this particular funeral, he decided he was going to try to raise the dead. Uh, Did he succeed? Well, you've guessed it right. No, he didn't. And the ructions that that caused can be imagined. Uh, He was married to the daughter of a, a fairly powerful member of that congregation. So when his boss tried to discipline him, Uh, he took the huff and off he went with his wife and his father-in-law and part of the congregation and they formed a new congregation. And those kinds of things happen there. Rather exotic forms of uh, apostasy and heterodoxy, and whatever other word you want to uh, describe this. The the, the kind of exotic form you get in Hebrews. Uh, I wouldn't think of discussing Christ's superiority to angels with you. Uh, Not because I don't believe that Christ is superior to angels. Of course he is. He's superior to everything. But because it's not really an issue with any of you. So we have to think, put ourselves in the position of a young church where people are being swept by the Spirit into it and some of them are falling by the wayside. And what does the writer do? He brings us to the fundamentals of the faith, showing that Christ is greater than Moses because they were being tempted to go back, if if not to exotic things like Gnosticism, and angel worship than to old familiar things like the Judaism out of which they have come. And I was very interested in how uh, Carl was led to pray because he talked about our religiosity. And if we're tempted to fall away, it's most likely to be a falling away where the heart changes and the the central core of our belief and our practice, but our outer practice goes on more or less the same. So the Lord is speaking to us all here, 
And he's doing it as the Spirit led the, the writer to do it by highlighting, by highlighting the work of Christ. Greater than Moses, yes. Uh, a, 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 a great high priest, greater than the high priest of the Jewish uh, religion, a new and greater covenant. And now he brings us at the end of uh, chapter 8, and I think you may want to follow this from here on in. Uh, in the, the, that long, extensive quotation from uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, verse 13 of chapter 8, he says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first, the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and ageless will soon disappear. And then... Bizarrely, it might seem to us, because we can't get our head around it, he picks up the tabernacle in chapter 9. Now, what was he saying? There is a new covenant now, and the old one is obsolete. And let me explain. He says, think about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the old way to God, under the old covenant, but it was inadequate, and in verses 1 to 10, 10, it was temporary. And now its time has come, and it has passed, and there is a new way. He, he gives the details in verses 1 to 5, and uh, then he says at the end of verse 5, what lots of preachers have to say but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. We would all love to, and you've heard wonderful sermons on all the items in the, uh, the tabernacle, and they're really uplifting, but we don't have time, and I take the cue from verse uh, 5b. And then uh, from verse 6 to uh, 10, he, he shows how it was inadequate. Essentially, because it only dealt with ceremonial uncleanness. If you touched a dead, a dead body accidentally, you were unclean. And you had to do certain things and then go and make an offering and be declared clean by the priest. It was inadequate because it only dealt with the external aspects of uncleanness. It didn't deal with heart and inner issues. That was the old way. But when we read these verses, we can see that from what we're being taught here, certain truths about God are coming out of this. Just let me highlight uh, three. One, God desires his people to approach him. Why would he have gone through all the rigmarole of setting up the tabernacle and all the regulations that take chapters and chapters in the Pentateuch if he didn't want people, his people to come to him and to approach him? God wants people 
to approach him. And Jesus used two verbs. One was, come. Come unto me. There was a strong emphasis in drawing people. Then later on, as we'll see, he uses another verb, and that is go in the power of the Spirit. God desires people to approach him. God is very particular about how we approach them. God is very particular about how we approach them. Now, I had a quick glance at the Presbyterian Herald uh, this afternoon. It's what you do on a Sunday afternoon. And, of course, there was the inevitable letter from somebody or other, he signed it, uh, saying that half of you shouldn't be here, especially the men, because you're not properly dressed. Okay. So, but, but I, I don't think he's, uh, the, the, this passage would justify uh, that, opi- that opinion. Oh, I have my own views on how you're dressed, but that's not going to keep you from the Lord. <laughs> that's just my generation. So we, let's set that to one side. Uh, but, but the Lord is very concerned about how we approach him in attitude and in outlook and in the means which we'll look at in a moment. And thirdly, the focus in this is on God's holiness and the sinfulness of the people and that's the problem. The, tempor- the tabernacle was uh, temporary, lasting to the time of the new order, but then was uh, obsolete. Okay, let's move on to uh, verses 15 and following. <laughs> the, 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 look at verse 15 to 22. And this is a difficult bit because it's all about death and blood. It's all about death and blood. And out of the blue, at least it seems so to us, he talks about a will. Do you see it? Uh, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed unto the first covenant. In the case of a will, now where on earth does a will come from? Okay, think of the word covenant in English. Now it's, it's used at least in two different ways. It's used in the biblical sense of uh, some kind of agreement, a commitment between uh, two people or two groups. Uh, the kind of secular version of that would be the covenant. Uh, when veterans are and uh, members of the armed forces uh, uh, sometimes talk of the covenant which the government has made with them. It's not a legal thing, but it's a commitment. You, you serve uh, queen and country, and the country is committed to seeing that you're looked after, and, and so on. So that's one sense. The, the other sense of the covenant is uh, some, of the, some of the shops around the assembly building, when they are uh, rented, there is a covenant attached to the legal whatever, and that restricts their use. Uh, nobody can apply for a license for alcohol 
nobody can uh, open on Sunday. They are specifically include, excluded by a covenant, which means something different from the general meaning of covenant. You, you hear what I'm saying? Now, in Greek, covenant means two things, which it, the second thing it doesn't mean in English. It means what we normally think of as a covenant, and the word also means a will. And the writer is playing on those two meanings of the word when he now begins to discuss death and blood. A will is not in force until the death of the person who made it. And so a covenant requires death. And then you get these verses where he from verses 18 to 22, the number of times in the old covenant blood was required. At every step in the Old Testament regulations, Moses got hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that they didn't have uh, uh, brushes in those days. So they had this small tight-knit plant and it was used for sprinkling. That's where the hyssop comes from. so, and this gives gets some of us a, 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 some difficulty. Why all this about death and blood? Um, I, I'm becoming familiar with radiotherapy at the moment. And in radiotherapy, these uh, delightful, uh, helpful, and charming young women, I have to call them young women, my daughter's been just home and she wouldn't let me call them girls, but you know, they're in their 20s, that kind of age. And they come and they get you ready and all that, and then they disappear. And they say, we'll see you shortly, and they're away. And you're there, and they say, don't worry, we can see you. And if you're in problems, just speak. There's a microphone. We'll hear you. And then after 10 minutes, uh, in they come and say, okay, now, and they don't let you get off the thing. Otherwise, you know, you have to, well, never mind the details. Uh, but why on earth do they disappear? Answer? It is very dangerous. These rays are very dangerous. And so anyone who's working with them has two solid walls because I then had a look uh, where they go and all of that. Two solid walls between them and this great machine that whirls around you and makes all kinds of noises. Okay. Something that can be used uh, as a, a great means in therapy is so dangerous, it can kill. And the scriptures refer to the holiness of God in those kinds of terms. Moses had to be protected. Moses had to be protected. The people had to be protected. We all have to be protected from the holiness of God that would burn us all up 
if we were unprotected, presented to it. And that's why there has to be a sacrifice. That's why there was a sacrifice of an animal in the Old Testament. And that's why in the New, we have the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we come now to the third point, which is Christ's perfect sacrifice. And you, you see it in verses 11 to 14 and in verses 24 to 28. And let me just highlight a few things. We don't have time for more. In uh, verse 23, uh, having uh, spoken of blood being essential, substitution being essential, we saw that last Sunday morning when we were thinking of the Passover. The essence of Christianity is the principle of substitution. Someone took our place so that we might be made right with God. Someone was just and so a just God could justify human beings all sinful because a perfect sacrifice took our place. And that we read of in these wonderful verses. The, the, the sacrifice of Christ is so much better than the old one. The, the, the greater tabernacle, not made with hands, the tabernacle, the most holy place in heaven, verses 12 and in verse 24. The sacrifice he offered of himself, verse 12, by his own blood, Verse 14, he offered himself unblemished. No one else. Think of the old hymn, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let me in. Verse 26 again, the sacrifice of himself. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was Jesus, the only perfect sacrifice. But when he went in to the most holy place as our great high priest, presenting himself as a sacrifice, he wasn't there for his own sake because he didn't need a sacrifice. He had lived a perfect life. No, verse 24, now to appear for us. Verse 26, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And then you get this uh, interesting conclusion. Verse 27, he was stressing that Christ 
only had to be sacrificed once. I'm not dealing with this tonight because it, it comes up in chapter 10. And uh, who's on? Jeffrey, I'm sure, will be dealing with that uh, next Sunday night. There's only, Christ is only sacrificed once. So at our table, some Christian traditions still see a sacrifice being repeated there. That is not our tradition. He was sacrificed once, and this is a memorial. This do in remembrance of me, and by the uh, Spirit of God, a transformation, but not a repetition of the sacrifice of Christ, a good reformation principle. But he died once, and then the, the writer says, we'll all die once, and die once to be judged. And the question is, when we die and face our maker, what will we say? How will we be found? Trusting in him, in his perfect sacrifice, or saying, oh, well, I'm sure I'm better than the neighbor and I'm sure I'll get through. That's falling away. He will not be sacrificed again. But then verse 28, but there is one thing he'll do for a second time. And what's that? He will return. He will return a second time. Uh, not to bear sin, stressing the once for all aspect, but he will return to bring and complete salvation to those who are waiting for him, for those who are trusting the Savior. And until that time, we need to be nourished, we need to be strengthened, we need to be encouraged, either a la Carl or a la Helen, however, we need to be encouraged and helped on our way. And we do that one way is as we gather round the table, totally unworthy, trusting in him and redeemed by his precious blood. And lastly, in a word, in uh, verse 14, what do we read? Verse 14, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, uh, note that how he will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. There's the death again. So that we may do what? May serve the living God. And that word serve refers to worship and refers <coughs> to action. My brothers and sisters, what an amazing Savior, our great high priest, who gave himself sinless that he was and died on a cross, conquered death, and rose again from the dead, having paid the price and covered in his blood, his perfect sacrifice. We have nothing to fear. Death has been 
destroyed. So in the news this week, we learned the, the drastic news that Michael Bublé's youngest son, Noah, was diagnosed with cancer. I'm sure many of you heard the story. I thought we would use that story to lead us into our prayers of intercession for others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we remember those in our families, in our congregation, amongst our friends and neighbors who are battling with cancer. We stand with those who have already been shocked by a new diagnosis and whose lives now feel like an emotional roller coaster. Fear, anger, uncertainty, hopelessness. Lord, may they know the peace and comfort that you bring. May they know the support and love and practical help of friends and family who love them dearly. For those facing the demands of ongoing treatment, the daily grind of hospital visits, the constant nausea and lack of energy, may they know that we are rooting for them. Even as we go about our daily routine, Lord, you know that our thoughts turn to them often and our prayers for them are constant. Lord, why do you let your people suffer like this? It can be so hard to find you and hold on to you in times like this. And yet, just like Job, at the end of the day, when we have asked our questions and vented our anger, all we can really do is trust you. You, Lord, are always good. You are our Father. In you is found real life and hope and peace. And therefore, we lean upon you. As we think ahead to the elections in the US this week, it's really hard to know what to pray. The book of Proverbs reminds us that wisdom is a thing in which you delight. And yet we see so little wisdom on our television screens. Jesus reminds us that loving others is one and the same as loving you. And yet we see so little of neighbours loving their neighbours in the election broadcasts. Father, inspire in the US citizens a deep-seated desire to delight in wisdom rather than focus on party lines and flawed candidates. Lord, move them to a compassion for others as a way of expressing their love for you. May voters see the voting booth as a way to express their undying devotion to a better world, a world less cluttered with the unnecessary pitfalls of the powerful, a world less littered with the entrapments of consumerism, a world that rejoices in the beautiful diversity that your creation brings. And then, Lord, in the silence, we just bring our prayers to you for those we know and love 
and who are on our hearts. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus.